Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning, guys. Glad you guys are all here today. Glad I am here today, too. Um, Lent is technically the 40 days before Good Friday. It is the period of time that we spend getting ready to celebrate Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and um, Resurrection Sunday. And to do that, we are in a series called I Am, where we are looking at statements that Jesus says, where he says, I am something, right? Um, And we're in the Gospel of John to do that. So we're spending our Lent period in the Gospel of John. Beyond looking at these passages, I'm also asking you to consider why you follow Jesus. The disciples all followed Jesus for a reason. If you ask them, they could probably tell you why they followed Jesus. And it might have been a good reason. It might have sounded like a good reason. But consider this, on the night that Jesus was arrested, they all ran away. Even the leader of the disciples was questioned, don't you know Jesus? And just upon that question alone, don't you know Jesus? He screamed and ran away. But if you were to fast forward just a few years, all of the disciples turned apostles, save John, would end up dying for their faith. Their reason for following Jesus changed. It shifted. And with it, their life changed. Something was different from the night that Jesus was arrested to the day that they died for their faith. Why you follow Jesus matters. Why you follow Jesus changes your life. Decades ago, as a teenager, I shared this with you a few weeks ago, I went to a play that showed me hell and demons and scared me so badly that I followed Jesus because I didn't want to go to hell, right? When you stack that reason up against the millions of other things that a teenager and young adult wants to do, not wanting to go to hell is not a very compelling reason to make my life about following Jesus. Fear will only get you so far. That's the honest truth. One day, my anger was greater than my fear. My pastor, whom I loved, died quite suddenly of cancer. My family that helped keep the church together until a new pastor was found was asked by a bishop whom I loved, to leave that church. So the new pastor could settle in, but that also meant leaving all of their relationships. So I felt hurt on behalf of my family. I felt betrayed by a bishop that I cared very much about. Another mentor at the same time in my life who happened to be a pastor was suddenly and without notice fired by his church. He lived in the parsonage with his wife and three kids. Suddenly, they had to find a new place to live. 
he was hurt and angry. And so all around me, very suddenly, I felt angry and betrayed by churches, Christians, and leaders who were Christians. I didn't really want to talk to anybody who was from a church and who was a Christian, and I didn't really want to talk about Christianity with anybody. It was a really easy time for me to say, you know what, God, I think I'm done. Not that I don't believe God. I just, I think I'm done. I just don't think I'm gonna follow. Because why bother God? No one else seems to follow. Everybody else seems to be hypocrites. And anybody that does follow seems like they get kicked to the curb. So I think I'm done, God. I'm out. One person kept reaching out to me. <clears throat> and, and I knew why. She was um, the boss at my most recent youth ministry job. And she kept wanting to uh, talk about my relationship with God. And it was long enough ago that cell phones were like fairly new, service wasn't great, so we mostly did house phones. It was easy to screen calls in those days, right? So I just didn't answer the phone very much. Um, most of the time I just said, I'm working a lot. I'm tired when I go in from work. I don't really wanna talk. I certainly don't wanna talk about my faith. I eventually I had a phone call where I answered the phone and we talked and I said, like, I just, I don't wanna talk about church stuff. I don't wanna talk about Christianity. And she, she respected that. And she said, so where, what construction are you doing right now? Where are you working? And it seemed like a, an easy enough question to answer. And I said, oh, I'm working at so-and-so a place. And I told her a landmark nearby where I was working. And I said, oh, we're doing this really big addition right now. Oh, okay, all right. That was the end of the conversation. Unbeknownst to me, the next day, she would drive near that landmark and drive around till she found a construction site and found my car. And on the front seat of my car, she left a book called A New Kind of Christian. I've read that book at least six times since that first time, maybe more. Now, I'm, not, I'm making the story shorter. It was a much longer journey for me. But in reading that book, God gave me hope for his church. And God gave me hope for his people and hope for a life in following him. I've tried to share that hope by reading that book with others. It's hope that I've tried to share by becoming a different kind of follower of Jesus myself. It's hope that I'll keep sharing and doing work with people around me. I don't follow Jesus out of fear anymore. I'll never follow Jesus out of fear again. Fear doesn't motivate me. It doesn't drive me. It doesn't compel me. But hope does. I follow Jesus out of hope. I follow Jesus because I have hope that the people who claim to follow him, myself included, that we will be more than hypocrites, that we will authentically follow God. I have hope in the church that we won't resemble the world, but that we will be a lamp on a hill, that we can be the compass to the world. I have hope 
that the words of Christ really are the way, the truth, and the life. And that when we meet together, we breathe in so that we can breathe out and go into the community and be the hands and feet of Christ wherever we are called, wherever we are commanded to be. I don't follow Jesus out of fear because I have hope. Why do you follow Jesus? Because the reason you follow Jesus matters. If you follow Jesus out of fear, it's only ever gonna get you so far. But if you follow Jesus out of something else, something like hope, it's quite possible that that gas tank will never run dry. Why do you follow Jesus? I want to push you on that question because I think it matters. I think that is a compelling question that will change the course of your life and it will change the course of the way you follow Jesus. Why you follow Jesus changes how you follow Jesus. So why do you follow Jesus? Don't give up on answering that question. Don't be satisfied with an easy answer to that question. Dig in and answer that question. Why do you follow Jesus? Now, if you picked a bulletin up or you looked up on the screen, you know what we're talking about this morning. I am light. This, this one is a little different. See, last week, we talked about Jesus saying, I am the bread. And Jesus said that, and there was a whole bunch of scripture we could chew on. This one is different, because he says, I am the light of the world, and he doesn't talk about it. This is like, this is like a magic eye poster. Anybody remember magic eye posters? Some of you, not many of you. Okay, let me explain magic eye posters. When I was growing up, they were a thing, all right? Teachers had them on the wall. There were books of them. And what they look like, for some of you guys who have wallpaper in your house, imagine a wallpaper print that is like a really tight pattern of wallpaper, all right? And now, if you were to stand back and stare at that wallpaper print, and you kind of go cross-eyed, suddenly a shape will appear in the wallpaper print. You should go home and do that with your wallpaper and just see if something appears. It would be really cool if in all of those old wallpapers there was actually things hidden. I don't think that's true, but it would be really cool if that was the case. Anyway, that's what a magic eye poster looks like, is it looks like wallpaper print, but when you go cross-eyed looking at it, there's a shape in there. And it might be like a race car or Mickey Mouse's head or something like that. It's not a detailed picture, it's just an outline of a shape in there, okay? But you had to sort of look at the image. That's sort of what this passage is like this morning. Um, there's, we're gonna look at the whole context and there's this thing that's gonna show up. I'm gonna show you the sort of hidden image in here um, that we really often miss. The hidden image in here is not that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. There's something behind this. I'm gonna tell you on the front end too, at the end of the sermon, I'm gonna need a few volunteers, all right? So some of you guys, I'm gonna need you to help me out and come up here, just telling you right now, if I don't get volunteers, this sermon is gonna be really weird at the end, all right? So, some of you guys just get a little courage by the time we get there. All right, here we go. 
The context is gonna be in John chapter seven. So the passage, the, the moment he says, I am the light, that's in John chapter eight, but if you have your scripture, or you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter seven. There's not a whole lot of scripture for me to show you this morning, but if you wanna reference what we're talking about, John chapter seven. Um, when we say that we wanna get the context of something, what we mean is we wanna understand the circumstances that an event happens in. When you look at the bulletin or you look at the screen behind me and it says, I am light, the first thing you should do is ask, why does he say that? Or what did he mean by that? In order to answer those questions, we have to get the context of the event. Last week we ended with Jesus claiming to be the bread of life. He invited his followers to partake of his flesh and blood that his body was going to be broken for the whole world. And, and I'm not sure that anybody who heard him that day understood what he was saying. Today, we understand that he's referencing the crucifixion, that his body would be broken on a cross, that his body would be broken in a redeeming sacrifice to restore the relationship between God and man that was broken by sin, and that redemption would be offered to the whole world. That sacrifice was so powerful that it would be effective for everybody for all of time. We get that. But the crowd that he's talking to, they don't hear it, they don't understand it. They're getting hung up on things like signs and wonders, on his birth certificate, and a very literal understanding of what he is saying. So most of them left. They just said, we're out of here. This is too hard, this is weird. But the people who stayed were the 12 disciples. Right after that, it's time for a great festival. And that's where we're picking up. It's right after this conversation about the bread of life. Now, this festival is a celebration of something that happened in the past. So, like Independence Day for us, something that happened in the past, we celebrate at festivals, right? Make sense? Okay. So, the thing they're celebrating is when the Israelites come out of the desert. They spent years and years and years and years wandering in the desert, they come out of the desert into the promised land. This festival celebrates the moment when they come out. That'll be important a little bit later. If you read all of chapter seven, what you get, and we're not gonna do that by the way, but what you get is the sense that the people who are in the crowd at the festival, they're really all back and forth about this Jesus guy. Who is he? Is he the Messiah? Is he just a rabbi, a good teacher? Is he a problem maker, like a troublemaker? Is he gonna be this rebellious guy who's gonna lead us against the Romans? The people, the crowds, they're divided. And you don't have to look very hard either to start seeing that there are some religious leaders who are really upset with Jesus about a miracle. You start seeing that crop up pretty quickly in chapter seven. And you see Jesus start saying something about a miracle. I did a miracle. Oh, I did a miracle. And that's not Jesus saying, I've only done one miracle. He's done many. He's referencing a miracle that they're upset about. And what miracle is that? Well, back in John chapter five, Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda or Bethsaida depending on your translation of the Bible that you're looking at. And he came across a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. That's almost four decades. 
And he came across the guy and he said, pick up your mat and walk. The guy picked up his mat and walked. He healed the guy, all right? Almost immediately, the guy picks up his mat and walks, and he walks right into a group of religious leaders, and he gets in trouble because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath day, which means he's doing work, which is a no-no. So just imagine for a second, you've been paralyzed for four decades, best day of your life, you're healed. The guy who heals you says, hey, pick up the mat you've been laying on for four decades, go walk. You go walk, walk into religious leaders, and you're in trouble for walking. How, how much are you loving the religious leaders? Not so much, right? So they're yelling at him, and he goes, hey, the guy who just healed me told me to take my mat and walk. Well, so then the religious leaders immediately turn on Jesus, and they're yelling at Jesus for instructing a guy to do work on the Sabbath and for doing work on the Sabbath because Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath day, right? So now the religious leaders are also angry at Jesus for doing work on the Sabbath day. So Jesus is in this argument. So he's at the festival. The crowd is not sure who he is, but now he's also in an argument with these religious leaders about doing work on the Sabbath day. So Jesus says to them, hey, you guys do circumcisions on the Sabbath day, right? You do circumcisions on the Sabbath day to make sure that the law of Moses doesn't get broken. How come I can't take a broken man's body and make it whole on the Sabbath day? What's the problem? How come you guys are, like, just judge rightly. You're judging by outward appearances. Judge by the right standard. So Jesus is in this argument with them and trying to get them to understand a different perspective. The perspective that he is seeing from is a divine perspective. They are seeing from an earthly perspective. They are only looking at the law. The law says for a person to be right, to be rightly Jewish, they must be circumcised on the eighth day. And if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath day, we circumcise them anyway. Which, to be fair, is a very small part of the body to take care of, right? Okay, Jesus says, I am concerned with the whole body. Let's, let's talk about the whole thing. Let's, let's judge by the whole thing. You guys aren't judging by the right thing. Okay, so he has this argument with them as well. The author of John's gospel, he, it just, he really records things that nobody else does. And that's one of the things I love about the gospel of John. He, he records something, and I think you'll understand this because of the sort of like political climate we live in today. The religious leaders are stuck because they are afraid that if they make too big a deal about Jesus, then they'll convince the people who don't think he's the Messiah that he is the Messiah. Oh, you're trying to censor him? Well then, there must be a reason you're trying to censor him, right? You get the idea. We live in a world where that sort of stuff is happening. Conspiracy theories and all sorts of stuff, right? Well, so they're, they're like walking a really fine line trying to not make too big a deal, but still make a big deal. They're also stuck because they're afraid that 
of the people who are already convinced that he is the Messiah? What if they do something and then those people revolt? If those people revolt and they cause a big enough mess, guess who comes in to squash it all? The Romans. And then guess who's gonna get in trouble for not keeping things in order? The Pharisees. So they have to walk this really fine line trying to deal with Jesus and not cause too much trouble. It's kind of tough on the Pharisees. John also records one other thing that I think is really worth mentioning. It keeps coming up. Jesus says it over and over again. He says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Jesus says it to his mother when he talks about turning uh, water into wine. When his brothers encourage him to go down to the festival, he says it to them again, my time has not yet come. In this chapter, it talks about how people are trying to lay hands and grab him, but they can't touch him because his time has not yet come. The guards come to arrest him, but they don't arrest him because his time has not yet come. John records this again and again and again. No one else makes mention of this in the same way that John does, in the same consistency that John does. No one can touch Jesus because his time has not yet come. Jesus is there, not on his timing, but on his Father's timing. This is an important thing for us to make mention of. He keeps saying, I'm not here on my authority. I'm here on my Father's authority. I'm not here on my timeline. I'm here on my Father's timeline. We, we don't live like this, but we should. We don't live in that sort of fearless way. Jesus lives in a way that none of us do. How different would our lives be if we could submit our lives to God in the same way that Jesus does? Jesus walks around fearless in, in, in such a way. I, I mean, I don't walk around that way. But, but Jesus is walking around not even scared that the guards are going to arrest him, not even scared the crowd's going to touch him because his time has not yet come. Complete and total trust in God, his Father. The end of the festival approaches. It's the final day. And the way that the festival ends, sort of the final ceremony of the festival, the, the priests would go to the pool of Siloam and they would draw water out of the pool and they would pour it at the altar. This is the culmination and the celebration of leaving, wandering in the desert and you end up in the promised land where water flows aplenty. The priest would pour the water, the water onto the altar and then they would recite Isaiah 12, three. And the, the recitation would go like this. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So it's around this time. It's on this day that Jesus, and you can look in uh, verse 37 of chapter seven, I have it here, see if the technology works perfect. Jesus, in a loud voice, says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Can you see how Jesus sort of takes an element of the festival and he flips it to make it about himself. He takes the final day, the culmination of the celebration that's about water, and he flips it to make it about himself. 
It's kind of hard not to see how the religious leaders might get ticked at Jesus, right? A little bit. You kind of start to see why they think he's a troublemaker, why they, he's a rebellious. I mean, if Jesus was in the early 90s, he probably had baggy pants, a big chain, spiky mohawk hair, and big earrings. You know what I mean? He'd be, he'd be grungy and rebellious. That's, I mean, he just, you know, like, he, he takes this, like, ceremonial moment where they recite this verse about water, and then he stands up, probably on a platform somewhere, in a loud voice, and he says this thing about water. On the biggest day of the festival, Jesus makes it about himself, but he makes it about God. I mean, it is about God, but the religious leaders, they don't get that. They get angrier. The crowds, this divides them further. Some think, yeah, this is the Messiah. Some think this is a prophet. Some are still hung up on the birth certificate. Isn't this, a, isn't this guy from Galilee? He can't be the prophet. Or he, he can't be the Messiah because the prophecies say that the Messiah is gonna be born in Bethlehem. So if this guy's from Galilee, well, nothing good can come from Galilee, so he can't be the Messiah, right? So it's all about the birth certificate for them again. Funny how nobody asks him, Right? I mean, Jesus could probably just say, well, actually, yeah, I, I mean, I grew up in Galilee, but I was born in Bethlehem. But nobody asked Jesus that. Anyway, so we, we, get, we get to the end of chapter seven there. That's where we're at. We're at the beginning of, of John chapter eight, and so I have this slide for you. Because I don't know what your Bible looks like. My Bible looks real funky when I get to John chapter eight. Or the very, very end of John chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 50-something or other. It has this whole part of the next passage italicized or a big footnote, and it says something like, the original manuscripts don't have this. Does anybody else's Bible say something like that? Right? Okay. So what's up with that? I, I thought, so this is not our sermon for this morning, and this story isn't our sermon, but I thought... How in the world can we get through this part without talking about it? So this isn't a Sunday school class, but I'm not gonna just ignore it and bypass it, so I'm gonna give you a quick explanation on it. Does it ever bother anybody that there's things like this in the Bible? Because the ending of Mark is like this too, if anybody's ever noticed that. You get to the end of the Gospel of Mark and all of a sudden you get right to the very good part and it's like, oh, by the way, this whole ending, not in the original manuscripts, right? This story is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, too, by the way, in John chapter 8. I love this story. What we call the New Testament didn't start as the New Testament for quite a while. It took hundreds of years for the New Testament to be put together, to be settled on. And so in the time after the disciples became apostles and they were writing these letters and compiling these things, People were still teaching. People were still spreading the word about Jesus Christ, and they were talking about the sacrifice he made. You know, when, when you think about um, the story of Philip meeting the Ethiopian eunuch on the road and leading him to know who Jesus was, he didn't have the gospels to do that. He used the Old Testament scriptures to do that. What they had was the Old Testament, and, and they didn't call it the Old Testament. Those were Jewish scriptures. 
they were writing these letters. Paul was writing his epistles to the churches at the time. It would take a long time for all those things to be gathered together and finally put into something that was a package that would be known as the New Testament, okay? The stories would have been shared in some written forms, some verbal forms, and when it was finally put together, there was a process that it went through where some, some letters were brought and they said, no, this letter, this does not line up. It's not making the cut. This letter does line up, it makes the cut. And there were some pieces like this one that in the oldest manuscripts weren't there. But they were being told, they were being talked about, they were being shared. And they were in some places, they were in some manuscripts. And they were very important. And they totally lined up with the character of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, and they became important stories that were being shared from church to church to church, and they were included. And so that story was one that was included. So it's not our sermon from this morning, but it's important that we, I think, talk about it briefly. It's an incredible story of grace and forgiveness is what it is. For a woman who was caught in sin, in a public and embarrassing situation, but it's also a story about religious leaders creating a situation to try and trap Jesus. And I think that's a good reason why it's put right here, in the middle of a, of, of a chapter where you have religious leaders arguing with Jesus over and over and over, where you have them trying to trap Jesus, trying to create situations for Jesus, arguing with him about things like healing on the Sabbath, well, here you go. Now they've gathered people together. Now they have an idea. Now they've created a trap to either try and get Jesus to break the law of Moses or lose his reputation with the crowds for compassion. Because, remember, one of the Pharisees' fears is that the crowds will rise up and rebel. If they can take the crowds out of the equation, then Jesus loses and they can deal with Jesus. So if Jesus breaks the law of Moses, well then they have him. If Jesus loses the power of the crowd, then they have him. So they create a perfect situation. They draw a crowd in, they bring this woman in, knowing that whatever choice Jesus makes, he's gonna have a problem. But the thing is that Jesus doesn't choose one of their options. He creates one of his own by reminding the crowd of their own imperfect lives and choices. And the thing is, is that Jesus encourages the crowd to fulfill the law of Moses. He encourages them to actually fulfill the law of Moses by having the one without sin be the one to fulfill the law. But no one there was without sin. So no one fulfilled the law and the crowd left, which allowed Jesus to extend the forgiveness and the compassion that he was so known for. It's a pretty incredible story. It's, it's fantastic, and it's still one of my favorites. But that is what brings us to our I Am passage this morning. 
Do you notice a pattern, though, of all the context, John 7, all the way through, the pattern is this. When we consider all that we're talking about, it's all about the identity of Jesus. The crowds are split on who he is. The religious leaders, they don't know who he is. But they're convinced he's trouble. Which leads Jesus to make another defining statement about who he is. So here it is. John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's the whole thing. Remember I told you last week, he talked about being the bread of life a bunch. This is all he says about being the light. What follows for the rest of chapter eight, 47 more verses, is an argument between Jesus and the Pharisees about how Jesus can't say that he's the light of the world because he doesn't have a witness to prove it. How silly is that? And then Jesus says, well, God's my witness, and the Pharisees, you can't prove that God isn't my witness. And then they go back and forth about who the Jews are and about who Abraham is and about who Jesus is to the point where they want to stone Jesus And then guess what? They can't stone Jesus because his time has not yet come. That's the whole rest of it. This is all he says about it. Which you might be like, well, that feels a little anticlimactic, Nick. We just did all that work in the context to get to this one little verse, and that's all he says about it? Yeah, it it is. So let's let's read it again. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. What did Jesus say last week? I am the bread of life that gives life to the whole world. So let me just highlight something. Because I think think this is the piece that you need to stare at the wallpaper to see. This, this is the shape that when you cross your eyes, you'll see. If, and if you don't, you'll miss it. I think this might be the whole point that Jesus is trying to make. And, and we will miss it. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. It's not by accident in the middle of a Jewish festival that celebrates a Jewish historical moment that Jesus stands up and announces. Get this. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. That is what he announces. Those are his words. Let anyone. It's a Jewish festival. You're not there unless you're Jewish.
It's been 2,000 years. And we are still doing something called gatekeeping. Gatekeeping is deciding who's in and who's out. That's what that word means. I, I, mean, I mean, literally just picture a drawbridge across a moat and somebody standing on the drawbridge and deciding who gets, gets in and who doesn't get across the drawbridge. That is what the, I mean, and then this is not a, a slight on the Jewish people, okay? Because what Jesus was in was a Jewish religion, but that's what the Jews were doing. What they had was for the Jews, so getting into a Jewish religion was extremely hard, okay? What Jesus is standing up and doing is pretty crazy. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. That is huge, said on the heels of a Jewish ceremony. And now this, I'm the light of the world, whoever follows me, on the heels of saying that he is the bread that gives, that, that takes care of the hunger for the entire world? This is, this, is, this is huge. In the midst of people arguing over who he is, over his birth certificate, over where he's from, over whether he's allowed to heal on the Sabbath and make a man whole, Jesus is making a massive and an important move. The kingdom is open for everyone. Jesus is clearing the drawbridge He's saying, you, you guys have missed the point. You missed the point, and so the drawbridge is now clear. I'm opening up all of the gates. Maybe at one point there was one. They're all open now. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. And if you're not quite sure if you buy it, Last week, I showed you the connection between the very first I am statement in Exodus and the very beginning of the Gospel of John, where I am present became flesh and the word put on flesh. Let me go back and connect you to the very beginning of John again. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light of mankind. At the outset, once again, it is the light of mankind. This is not somebody on the drawbridge, but at the outset, the word was meant for all of mankind. This is clear. And one of the reasons that we can be sure that this is clear is that John, the author of the Gospel of John, is the apostle who lived longer than any other apostle. He got to stick around longer than anybody. So the conclusions that he draws as he writes his gospel are some of the most mature Christian theology that we have. His letters are written, I mean his gospel is written after Paul's letters are written. His conclusions are so mature. What he is saying Jesus did is open the doors for everybody, the light of all mankind. So I wanna set the scene really clearly for us. And this is where I need a little bit of help to do that. I need a couple of volunteers, like five people, okay? I know Jeff's gonna help me, all right? 
Jeff's going to, oh, I got two Jeffs. I got a Randy. Okay, good. I need a couple more. I need you on stage, stage uh, Jeff. Come on. Come on. Help me out. It's like a silent movie. You don't have to say anything. You just have to act like something for me. You got to go up on stage. This Jeff, not you. Good, good, okay. All right, Brad, I need you to man the light switch for the cross back there. All right, so I need, um, you guys can stand right here, off to the side, and you can just like grab each other and just do this, like you're, you're kind of fighting, okay? That's all I want you to do, slow motion fighting, okay? Um, Can you just, he's going to be Jesus. Oh, he is. Okay. Yeah. Can you just shake your fist at him like this? Like you're angry. <laughs> all right? Like he's, like he's too loud on your front porch. Ah. All right? All right. Jeff, you're going to come off to the side of the drum cage. And I just want you to point at the cross and be like, look, look, look at the cross. And Brad, you're going to flick the light on and off. You're going to make a blink back there. All right, I need one more person, one more person yet. One more person, okay, one more. Bob, all you gotta do is stand right here and face them and just go, huh, huh, yep, like that, all right. And you are a disciple, so you're just gonna, you're gonna look at him intently. Like, you're just watching what he's doing, perfect. All right, give me an angry fist. There you go, perfect. All right, you're fighting. All right, when I say action, go. Ready, set, action. Perfect. All right, everybody pause. Now, this is John 7 and 8 right here, okay? Now hear me. The question becomes this. Where are you? in this. Where are you? Because there are people busy fighting, okay? There are people going, I have no idea what to make of anything that's going on. There are people busy, just angry at Jesus. There are disciples who are watching intently, still not sure if they get what's going on, but they're watching, okay? And there is Jesus doing everything he can to like call attention to the fact that this thing is open, no more gatekeeping, gates are down, okay? Are, we, are you with me? This is the silent movie that is going on in John 7 and 8. This is what's happening all around us, okay? All right, give a hand for our silent movie. All right, you guys sit down, thank you. Thank you, Brad, the guy behind the scenes. Now, I have like 30 seconds. This is why it matters why you follow Jesus. Because there's a whole lot of noise. There's a whole lot of noise. Like these two people fighting I don't even know what they're fighting about. I have no idea. 
okay? Like in the, in the, in the uh, story we just read, maybe it's the identity of Jesus, maybe it's about the healing on the Sabbath in our world today. I, I have no clue. Pick a topic. Is that you? Maybe, <laughs> right? Are you shrugging up here? Because you're just like, you're exasperated with all of it. I just have no idea anymore. Are you the disciple watching? Because just maybe that is the best place to be. Understanding or not, your eyes are just locked on Jesus. Where are you in this? Why are you following Jesus? Why in the midst of all of this noise are you following Jesus? Because I will be totally honest with you, if it's out of fear, and this is all that you see, it's all going on, I just don't think that you're gonna last. I don't. But if it's for some other reason, if it's for a better reason, I think you're sticking it out. And if you don't have a better reason, I want you to have a better reason. Come talk to me, please. Jesus is the light of the world. He is trying to show us something. He is up there hopping and pointing and trying to show us something. Are you paying attention? Amen? Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.